back to episode 63 of the All Things Strength and Wellness Podcast. I'm your host once again, Robbie Burke, and we are brought to you by upmentorship.com, one of the top strength and conditioning resources available online today. To get instant access to almost 20 hours of world-class online video strength and conditioning information, go to upmentorship.com and help support the show. This episode's guest was Dr. Quinn Hennock of Dark Side Strength and Juggernaut Training Systems. Quinn is a doctor of physical therapy and a strength and conditioning coach, as well as a competitive Olympic weightlifter. On this episode, me and Quinn discussed many topics, including Quinn's training and rehabilitation philosophies. We discussed the knees OQ that has been a hotly debated topic in the training sphere as of late. We discussed the biggest things Quinn has learned in his career so far and Quinn's advice to all the coaches and practitioners listening as well as much more. This was a really great interview guys and I really hope you enjoy it. Okay, Dr. Quinn Hennock, it is an absolute pleasure to have you on my podcast. Just for the listeners who might be too familiar with who you are, just fill us in on your background. Uh, yeah, so I appreciate you having me. Um, Dr. Quinn Hennock, I'm a physical therapist, a doctor of physical therapy. I graduated from the University of Indianapolis in Indiana um, from physical therapy school. Before that, I played college football at a small small D1 school in Indiana called Valparaiso, but I've been a practicing physical therapist for about a year and a half now, um, and my main, you know, I'm doing work with, with Chad Wesley Smith at Juggernaut Training Systems. Um, Ryan Brown and I are, are kind of pushing the dark side strength thing as a, as a movement to get people to to just think about their movement and uh, perform a little bit better. Um, in, in the last year and a half, it's just been, it's been PT and it's been me just trying to grow and I tried, so I'm a competitive Olympic weightlifter, so I try to do that on the side. Um, and so yeah, it's just my, it's been all about performance and, and rehab. And tell, tell the listeners about your, your bulking experiment at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it's not a, I, was, I used to be a powerlifter, um, and in college, you know, obviously you wanted to be a little bit heavier to, to play football, and as I became a weightlifter, I wanted to drop down a little bit to be more competitive uh, as a 77-kilo lifter, which is about 170 pounds at five foot nine. and at 28 years old now, it's just, it's a little bit too hard for me to stay skinny, and so I'm just going to kind of let my body do its thing, and I'm, I'm not going to try to bulk, I'm just going to... I'm just going to eat the way that I know I can, yeah. and the weight will just, it'll just go on, and that's, that's, that's the way it goes. You know, I'll be 180 pounds, no problem, and the 85 kilo class is 187 pounds, and I would like to fill that out um, before nationals in August, so we'll see. You know, it's going to be a lot of milk, it's going to be a lot of ice cream, it's going to be a lot of Oreos, and I'm really excited about it. Fucking sign me up for that diet. <laughs> you can write a book then about that, you know what I mean? I got, a, I got about a half a stick of butter in my coffee right now, so I'm nailing it. <laughs> brilliant, brilliant. I hope it's Kerrygold butter, is it? Yeah. Oh yeah, of course. <laughs> uh, Quinn, I ask everyone this question who comes on the show, because uh, I, I, I guess I like to know who's, who's kind of shaped um, individuals throughout their life. So who would you say has been your biggest influence on, on you, both as a uh, therapist and as a person, and also as a coach, so as a therapist and a coach on one side, and as a person on the other side. Oh man, um, as a therapist, I guys like Bill Hartman, Greg Cook with the functional movement systems, probably the the two most influential people on me. Um, 
studied their stuff as much as I did my you know school material when I was when I was in PT school. Yeah. Charlie Weingroff is another huge influence on me. Um, the Postural Restoration Institute I've learned a ton from them just on just on the mechanics of the body and the influence of the nervous system. Um, as far as as a coach, you know I've just all the people I've worked with. Uh, John Thrush is an amazing weightlifting coach who's had a, an influence on me. Um, a guy named Ben Carter from Bluegrass Barbell is my first coach. Colin Burns is is coaching me now, and his just um, kind of balance between not being overly coaching and not giving a ton of cues, but but finding the right things to say is, has been an influence on me as an athlete and a coach. Mm. Um, yeah, Ryan Brown has, has taught me a ton. You know, working with him and we just kind of bounce ideas off of each other. It's it's been great, man. The, my my experiences and what I put out there definitely a melting pot. You know, it, my my stuff. I, I try to be as original as possible, but in in the grand scheme of things, I've learned everything is that's in my head. You know, I've learned from people much smarter than me. Yeah, yeah. but I think it's it's really about you know taking the best from everyone and kind of bringing that together and formulating your sort of own, own conclusions. If that's definitely what, from an outsider looking in at your stuff and the stuff you put out there, that's that's what, what it seems to me. You know, you're taking a bit from Bill, you're taking from the function moving systems, PRI, DNS, similar to myself, and you're kind of putting it together in a way that makes sense in your head. Absolutely, yeah. And I think, you know, I, I like that there are those very, um, very strict schools of thought. You know, they adhere to their system, and I... Like you said, I want to take bits and pieces because I, I am, have not been in this industry long enough to have developed a very street, a very finite pinpoint philosophy. I'm, I'm still in this, in this point in my career where I, I want to learn from everyone, and I'm, I'm still building my philosophy. You know, my, my avenues and my um, techniques change weekly almost. You know, I'm always experimenting, and so I think that's what any any new clinician, any new coach, don't just find one hero. Don't get wrapped up in one school of thought. You've got to learn from everyone, and then you're you're going to mold over time. And it's going to take five or ten years. And I think that's something that I've I've tried to adhere to. I I don't want to get pigeonholed into any one thing just yet. It it sounds like you're in the the phase of mastery called the creative active. I'm reading a book at the moment by Robert Green. I don't know if you've ever heard of Robert. Yeah. Green. Yeah, but uh, I'm reading this book Mastery at the moment. I'm, I'm, I'm like, I consider myself a slow reader. I read a book maybe every two. I, I it takes me about two to three weeks to read maybe a three four hundred page book. But I'm I have this book almost finished in under a week, which is fast for me. Like so, I'm just devouring this book. I love it. But he's talking about the three sort of stages of mastery. First is your apprenticeship, then you go to this cr- creative active stage, and then finally into mastery. And kind of creative active is where you're. You know your brain is working so much you're taking work from everywhere and you're kind of nearly form starting to formulate your own ideas so it kind of nearly sounds like you're in that sort of process so i kind of feel i'm in the similar position myself because the first phase is more so when you have your mentor and you're going through that phase and you're learning just the basic rules and stuff before you kind of you know know the rules before you kind of break them or bend them that kind of stage so it's uh it definitely sounds like you're you're you know you're in a it's a really exciting time like because you know your brain's always working overload going, well, what about this what about that so it sounds great yeah, absolutely. And I think that you, in general, jump around. You know, I'll be, I'm in this, this creative phase, and maybe maybe I've got one, I implement one thing from a school of thought that I think that I've mastered. And so in that moment, I've kind of 
that mastery phase. But then I'd go to a, a seminar, or I'd go and visit, you know, IFAS and talk to Bill, and I'm back to the apprenticeship. Yeah, I feel you know, the same. It's, it's funny you say that, because I'm, I'm 27, you're, and you were saying you were 28 earlier on. It's, uh, I, like, when I was reading the book, I was like, sometimes I feel like I need to, like, apprentice again. Do you know what I mean? I'm like, Absolutely. yeah, yeah. So, sorry to interrupt you. Go on. I, Bill, it's so funny. I met Mike Robertson last October. He was over in Ireland, gave a, a, a seminar, a two-day seminar. It was amazing. And, and Mike's a great guy. And it's actually freakish. I, I said this to Mike. It's freakish how similar we think about training. Like, I absolutely wrecked Mike Robertson's head for the two days. The poor man. Like, he literally got to a stage at the seminar where, like, he'd go questions. And he'd look at me and go, Robbie? And, I, and I'd be like, oh, no, I'm okay. And he's, he's like, really? You don't actually have a question now? And I was like, no, no, I'm fine. I'm fine. <laughs> Like it got to that stage where he just look at me every time, but like I keep saying to Mike, like I'd love to meet Bill. And I don't know if you ever met Connor Ryan. Like he's always like, oh yeah, you gotta meet Bill. Bill's the man. But anyway, sorry for interrupting you there. You were just saying you go back to Bill, so you can keep going there. No, yeah, you know you go back and like you said, you you got to learn from. Automatically, you become the apprentice. Yeah, you know just just being in the guy's presence, um, or anybody like that. You know, I went to a Charlie Weingroff seminar. A couple months ago, and it was the same thing. You know what I mean? You like you immediately know your place, and you just want to learn from the man. Yeah, and that's yeah. the way it should be. Yeah. And then if we if just continue with that question, so that's more of a professional influence. What about just as as yourself as a person? The usual answer is is parents, but for you, what is it? Oh man, that's a tough question. Um, you know, we yeah, the usual answer is parents. I would say. My mom, first and foremost, uh, raised in a single household, and so it was kind of a, as an only child, definitely an independent childhood. I, yeah. I learned that quality very quickly, and my mom perpetuated that, um, you know, and allowed me to learn kind of on the fly and, you know, make mistakes, and I think that's been, uh, I've carried that through my life. In PT school, I, I traveled, I took all the opportunities to go to Boston and San Francisco and Seattle and I you know I, I met all these people because I I learned how to be independent and just kind of let go yeah. you know what I mean yeah. and I, I think that's helped my career as well I, I take chances you know I out of PT school I didn't I didn't take a, a normal job right away I decided to go in a kind of an independent out of network so no insurance based practice where the money wasn't going to be there initially but the student loans were you know what I mean and yeah the, yeah but it's it's I think it was my it was definitely my childhood that kind of molded me into the type of person I am today just willing to take chances and and willing to be independent just uh, an interest it's just I didn't even have this in my notes to ask you but why PT what what drove you towards um, being, a, being a physical therapist yeah I, so I graduated from undergrad with an exercise science degree. Um, didn't really know what I wanted to do at the time. I started I started coaching. I was a I call it sports performance coach at this place called Velocity Sports Performance. Oh, yeah, no, it's you know, just a yeah. So just a strength and conditioning coach there, and I worked at another. Um, it was a CrossFit gym actually, so I was a strength and conditioning coach there, and so I was doing that, and it was great, and I loved it. But you know, thinking about that field and how hard it is. To kind of not work 60 hours a week you know you, you got to really earn your way work your way up and I I also felt like I was missing something you know people would come to me with injuries or they would say you know I hurt this or I have this surgery or I've had this injury in the past and I would be like wow you know I don't even know what that is let alone be able to tell you what to do about it in this moment and so I wanted 
I wanted to be able to coach and I wanted to be able to be in the strength and conditioning field, but I also wanted to broaden my horizons. And when I started reading about physical therapy, it was like a light bulb. You know, it was, why didn't I think of this? I took a year off in between undergrad and PT school and couldn't believe that I didn't just go take the PT route right away. It was exactly what I wanted. Yeah. It was everything that I could have done in strength and conditioning. I could keep all of that, but I also had this just broad knowledge and potential for the, the rehab and the injury. Yeah, yeah you, you just you just felt drawn kind of towards the, the rehabilitation aspect of things. Yeah, yeah, I did. I just felt I wanted the whole spectrum. Yeah. I knew how to train people. I knew how to train healthy people, but I didn't necessarily know how to get unhealthy people healthy again, and I didn't know how to how to keep them as safe as possible. And I, so I just wanted that whole that spectrum. And at the time, I didn't know as much about the resources like a Greg Cook or Bill Hartman and. You know, I wasn't as abreast of that stuff, and it was only until I got into PT school that I was, you know, taking note of those people and, and learned how to blend the strength and conditioning and PT field together. And so it was absolutely no regrets yeah. going going back to PT school. It was 100% the right decision for me. Great stuff. Another question I always ask everyone is, with regards to the industry or, well, Birmingham better hates when I say industry. I interviewed him and he goes, it's not an industry. We don't wear hard hats. It's a profession. I was like, okay, Jesus Christ. <laughs> so, uh, with regards to, to, to our profession, so both, you know, strength and conditioning um, and, and with regards to you as a, as a physical therapist. So, this, can, this, can, this question can be for both the physical therapy profession and the strength and profession or if you want to kind of answer it as a kind of a ho- you know, holistic sort of outlook between the two and connecting together. In your, yeah. in your opinion, what are the biggest problems you see within, the, within those professions? You know, it's so hard in the PT profession because of the healthcare system. Um, the insurance, the insurance systems make it really, really difficult. I think that strengthen a lot of strength. The PT has a, a stigma of not being able to get people strong and just giving them the same cookie cutter. You know, three sets of ten. Exactly. These passive modalities. And so I think strength coaches write off physical therapists just right away. But it's really tough because with the healthcare system, you some PTs have no choice but to see three and four people at a time. In one hour, they'll see three and four patients at once. And so you can't give your best. You know, even if you have the knowledge, you can't give it. And so these passive modalities almost become a formality because you, you don't have any time to do anything else. And so I think it's it's almost not the fault of some physical therapist. But having said that, somebody with an injury could go to six different PTs and get six completely different treatment packages. The, the, the rehab could be completely different. And I think that's something that Greg Cook talks about a lot is that we don't have a standard operating procedure as a physical therapy profession. There's just... They train us in PT school to be generalists, so I could work in a hospital in the ICU as well as I could work in an outpatient facility. And it's not until you graduate and spend five years in whatever field you want to be in that you actually learn. And so there's just so much, there's just such a steep learning curve. And, you know, for a new clinician who's a year out of school, all of a sudden they get a high-level athlete, they may not know what to do with them. And so to the strength coach, it's like, well, the PT doesn't know what they're doing. And so I think for PTs, you know, in, in my situation, the Ada Network is able to work with, with athletes' needs 
to do more research and to learn more about strength and conditioning. They need to know what training is. And I think that's going to help to bridge the gap. And I think strength coaches need to work a little bit more closely with their physical therapists and not try to be the PT themselves. Yeah, yeah. You know, and not try to um, give rehab advice. Don't assess things that you don't know what you're actually looking at. Um, have, you know, as a strength coach, go and, go and shadow, go and work with the PT. If you send an athlete to a physical therapist, go with them. Yeah. And kind of talk it out. And as a physical therapist, be okay with that. You know, you, it's got to be a team effort. And I just think there's, there's a knowledge gap. It's funny, a, fr- a friend, uh, sorry to interrupt you, a friend of mine uh, here in Ireland, he's a coach too, Dave Hare, he, he was saying that he, he thinks in 50 years' time there, there won't be strength and conditioning coaches or PTs anymore as uh, in isolation. He thinks it'll be the one thing, like in 50, 60 years' time. There'll be courses where it's like you know a six-year degree and you'll come out being a performance coach and a PT because he's just like the two are, you, you can't isolate those two, he, he feels anyway. They need to be combined. Like Yeah, exactly. I think that goes back to my thing about at the moment, physical therapy school is such a generalist approach. Yeah, yeah. But there's, and I don't, I haven't thought of a better way to go about it. But there's got to be a way to get PT students to specialize earlier, so that they can they can come out with a better knowledge base. Like what you're saying, if I if I go into PT school and I know that I want to be in the strength and conditioning field, there's no reason why I shouldn't be focusing, starting to channel my energy towards that after the first year. And it's not that at all. It's like it's not until the last year, maybe half of the last year of PT school, where you really start to, to specialize into what you want to do. And if it's going to keep being like that, then there's not going to be a, a PT plus strength coach because, you know, there's too much there's too much to learn in PT school to fill your head with strength and conditioning too. Like I got to learn how to what a chest tube in the ICU does, or you know what some type of neural neurological disorder that I'll probably never see and the outpatient clinic, I got to learn about that. And so it's just really, really tough. There's, mm-hmm. The system is, is just not built for that right now. That's, it's very, that's, that's a really good point that you make. I never really thought about like that, like, you know, that if you do go into PT school and you're kind of like, I do want to be a strength coach too, uh, you know, and you're kind of saying, but your head is filled with four years of stuff and three years, but you don't, you don't even want to, you won't even need to use because if you just got the general PT overlay in that first year and then specialized kind of in PT slash strength and conditioning, it's very good. Yeah. Point. It's, it's a really good point. Actually, man, I never really thought of it like that. I learned. Uh, we had we had one one lecture on the FMS yeah. in PT school. I had already even before PT school, I, I was familiar with the FMS because I used it at you know at jobs and things like that. But we had one lecture on Greg Cook and the functional movement screen in three years. Yeah. So if that gives you any idea. It's kind of, of like, it's, kind, it's kind of like the doctors, you know, uh, with their like three hours of nutrition in six or seven years. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly right. Uh, have you ever heard of uh, Rob Panriello from New York? You know, I've heard the name. Uh, it's funny. It. I, I'm interviewing him tomorrow on the podcast. I, I've, I would be very friendly with him through email. I never have personally met him face to face, but he is a, 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 owns a number of physical therapy clinics in New York and uh, is a big time strength conditioning coach too with good friends with Johnny Parker and very influenced by the Bulgarian um, Bulgarian Russian sort of training systems but he'd be uh, you know he sounds very f- similar to you in that he was the same you know that he always tries to integrate both together and you know the kind of real 
uh, say like if you're looking at the a continuum where you have PTs at one end and strength coaches at the other, the PTs on one end find Rob a very aggressive PT because he's got because my God he squatted ACLs. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that kind of way. So he he'd be a great guy for you, I think, to get in get in contact with because the two yous definitely have a very similar sort of. Uh, you know, similar career. Well, he's much older. I think he's like in his fifties. I don't want to age the man now, so I hope I hope it over age. But you know, you're in a very similar career path to him. To him, so he'd be a great guy to link up with. Yeah, absolutely. I spent a lot of time in New York, so I I will definitely hit him up. Thank you for yeah, that. So uh, well, I I'd love to go over too. So we might we might rendezvous and and uh, get to know the man. There um, you go. I know you said you're still kind of figuring out your philosophy in terms of you know training and rehab, but if I was to pose that question to you now, like when it comes to kind of rehab and training, what is your overall philosophy? So for to give you maybe for instance for me like with rehab anyway a rehab philosophy like I'm definitely like Gray, and it's funny you mentioned Gray and the kind of standard operating system. When you when you ever you explain that to people first like therapists like it's like a light bulb goes off because I remember I, I was in a a neuromuscular therapy course and we were just learning all these techniques like and then I was trying to explain to the guys one day when I learned about like the FMS systems I was like yeah but like you need a system to put this stuff into so I'm like it doesn't matter if you're an osteopath or a physio or a chiropractor as long as we use a system a baseline system to test and retest that's all that matters and then like everyone's like that makes sense and I was like yes read this guy great cook you'll, you'll understand so like in, in terms of rehab like I, I would be you know you, I would my philosophy is that kind of SFMA and use everything within that and then you know, there's also other systems you can fit in there like the dns and the, and the pri and then when it comes to the training aspect i'm very much again an objective person test train what's the most limited sort of biomoral quality energy system the biggest weakness there retest kind of you know and we all we all know the basic training principles specificity overload volume intensity all things like that variation and whatnot but sorry i'm digressing here with regards to your philosophy then when it comes to sort of rehab and training what would your answers be to that so I'm always looking at as for you gotta as far as assessment goes, that's always number one, right? If somebody walks in the door, you've got to assess them. And I'm always looking at this dichotomy between mobility and stability. And we'll define mobility. There's a million on the internet, I know, and I don't wanna I don't think it's black and white because I think the definitions change depending on the context. But yeah. in general, when I refer to mobility, it's the quality of a joint system. So it's the joint congruency. It's the muscle extensibility. It's the soft tissue flexibility. It's all of those attributes combined to create the potential for that joint system to move through a, a particular range of motion. Mm. And so that's on one end. And on the other end is this notion of stability. And as Charlie Wongraff says, it's the um, the ability to or the the ability to control movement in the presence of change. I love that saying. Well, I think that's a really good definition. Yeah, and so it's like. Stability is the ability to control your mobility. It doesn't mean stiffness or static. It can be dynamic stability, but you're either you're controlling the movement or you're resisting unwanted movement. And so there's a spectrum of this continuum of mobility stability. So when somebody walks in the door and they have an issue, my job is to figure out is it a mobility issue or where are the mobility restrictions and where are the stability limitations or incongruencies. And so, for example, if somebody, if I look at somebody's overhead squat and they can't break parallel in their overhead squat, but you put their ankles up or you hike their ankles on a, on a whatever, a block, or you put them in weightlifting shoes and all of a sudden they can break parallel in their overhead squat, 
anywhere yeah. because you haven't assessed that. All you know is that putting their heels on a block improves their motor patterns. And that does two things. It gives them an ankle, but it also gives them an anterior weight shift, meaning they can sit down and back much, much easier without falling on their butt. Yeah. It's almost like a counterbalance. When in reality, your abs and your diaphragm and your pelvic floor should act as your counterbalance. And so my job as a PT to, is to keep whittling things down, and maybe I get that person on the table and, and their hips move fine, or they're actually hypermobile. If I didn't look at that, and I prescribed them a bunch of hip stretches, they would at best be ineffective and at worst possibly uh, potentially dangerous because we're tugging on a nervous system or on a system that's already mobile. And so that's my philosophy is to figure out the difference of mobility and stability. And I use the SFMA principles, um, and I use the FMS principles, especially with general movement patterns, breaking it down as the SFMA does, and also looking at appendicular testing or, or specific joint testing, very, very similar to what you would learn in a PRI course, um, figuring out the body's rotational asymmetries, Things of that nature. Yeah. And so that's my, my assessment piece. My, my treatment piece, depending on where they're at, is this a painful case? Is this just a movement limitation case? I want to reset them, and that could be a passive reset, maybe some type of, of breathing reset or some type of, of manual thing that I do with my hands or a tool. But my job is to reset the nervous system so that what was a painful movement or range of motion is no longer that and then I will reinforce that movement with either repetition or load and that's kind of bridging the gap to get them back to the training room and one piece I want to mention is I am I'm a physical therapist I am by no means a manual therapist I use manual techniques in my practice but I do so with the intent of creating a neural input to decrease neural drive somewhere. And so if I think that somebody's got increased neural drive in a particular muscle or a joint system, I'm gonna pick a technique to decrease neural drive, but I'm not thinking that I'm breaking up scar tissue or you know, restoring sliding surfaces or anything of that nature. And I think that's very, very important. And especially for people who like to jump on the foam roller and lacrosse ball as a self, kind of self myofascial release or use a band as self-mobility drills, you need to understand that you're not, you're, you're manipulating the nervous system. You're not manipulating your structure. And that's very important in terms of dose and intensity. And that's kind of an aside, but I just want to make sure that I'm, you know, clear with the people that I work with, what I'm actually doing with my hands. Yeah. Yeah. It's great stuff. But like one, one thing that I kind of, now I don't do as much sort of rehab as I used to, but one thing that I learned kind of as the years went on with regards to the manual aspect or, or applying sort of a manual technique, you know, at first I was like, say for instance, drawing needling, mm. I would dry needle one one person, and like it would be brilliant. You know what I mean? They, you know, it would it would it would just work. Like say it was a shoulder issue. And there was definitely some hypertonicity in the traps or whatever, and I'd use that just to get the traps and you know work breath and all that whatever, and it would work well with that individual. Then with another individual, like it would just be 
horrendous because they would just be so sympathetic to it now i didn't realize that it was a sympathetic response at the time like i was only young like i didn't know what I was yeah. but as as the years went on i learned more about the autonomic nervous system what I've started to do is kind of put like, right, these manual therapies are more sympathetic based from what I've seen off people and these are more sort of parasympathetic based what I've seen off people. So for instance, this is just, just this will kind of explain what I mean. This is more so for the listeners rather than you, Quinn, because I know you'll, you'll, under, you'll get this. Uh, like I had a girl come to me a few weeks back with a calf issue and it's funny, she rang me and she's like, you know, could you, we would, like the guys are saying you could like dry needle it for me and it'll be okay. And I was just like, okay, just come down and see me tomorrow. But I knew straight away, I was like, I'm not dry needling her calf because I know this girl, she's been, you know, she kind of has anxiety issues. I was like, if I needle yeah. her calf, it'll be terrible. So I went in like, and you know, did a bit of an SFMA on her to look through things and uh, got her on the table and just barely touched her calf. And you'd swear I put a knife in it. And she was like, oh God. And I was just like, yes, uh, we won't be putting a needle in this today. <laughs> So she was just like, what should I do? And I was just like, honestly, I just want you doing very gentle sort of soft tissue work on it and gentle stretch and give it two days, come back to me. And she came back in two days time and I could literally put my tongue in it like 100% harder. And she was like, oh, it's much better. But like my, my point I'm making is like, I could have been like, oh, I'll just draw a needle and ART it and it'll be great. Like, cause these techniques work great to break down scar tissue. It's like, no, her, she's gonna like go so sympathetic, sweat. It'll be such a stress response to her. She won't get any benefit from this treatment where, you know, a gentle, muscle energy technique or some gentle fascial work suits her better but then on the other end of the spectrum i have like really tough guys like sort of my age like mid-20s and they play the irish sports over here and like they just want you to dig into them they're like they're the kind of people that say oh he killed me on the table but i felt great after it they're your kind of parasympathetic down to people who need more sympathetic treatment so that's just kind of something i've been toying around with the last while with regards to applying a manual therapy stress so I don't know, like, do you see similar things like where someone comes in and you're like, I know that if I do ART to release this scar tissue here, it's not going to be good for this person or vice versa? 100%. And I, I see a consistency with kind of the SSMA testing and deeming somebody hyper or hypomobility. I call them, uh, like, spaghetti noodles. The people <laughs> that can, like, palm the floor yeah. and... Um, you know, sit into an acid-grass squat with, and look at you like what, you know, like this? And, you know, their joints, or maybe they, they can palm the floor, but they can't actually, but they can't squat because they don't have the motor control. Yeah. But when I move their joints around, they're literally spaghetti noodles. They, their joints move everywhere. Um, I find that those individuals respond less favorably to sympathetic-based um, treatments like what you're describing. Mm. But on the other end of the spectrum, like a guy... I got my hands on a powerlifter, Sam Bird, um, sometime last year, and I, I've never performed ART so aggressively. It was, it was a workout for you. To, oh my God, yeah, to an individual in my life, and it was his. But his pecs felt like they literally felt like they had gravel inside of them. Yeah, yeah. And so, and his, but the tissue quality improved immediately, and his range of motion improved immediately. And I had to do both sides or he was going to be extremely asymmetrical. And <laughs> so the response was unbelievable. Yeah, yeah. But then I do, if I were to perform that type of aggression onto somebody, in the, like the individual that you're describing, there's no way that that would work. Yeah. And you would not get, you would actually probably get the opposite response. That your nervous system would increase neural drive to that area because it's so threatened and it would actually go the other direction. And so it's really, really interesting. It's so 
it's such a nervous system. And this is why it's so important to understand that mechanism. Yeah. Because if you think that you are just, just you know, I'm, I'm going to change the structure of this tissue right now, then, then you are going to go harder and you're going to go longer because that's what it would take to change structure, intensity and duration. Yeah. But since most of what you're doing is influencing the nervous system, you've got to do, you've got to have the appropriate dose. Yeah, it's all about the brain and the nervous system. You know, it's it's when when that kind of stuck in my head when you know someone, I can't remember. It's probably just from a number of resources, but people are just like, it's the brain that you're always affecting. The brain is the fucking master controller here. Like so, it's uh yeah, it's again, it's it's you know, it's funny. Me and you are both similar ages, so you know, our our, our kind of learning process is very similar. It's kind of, there's another strength coach, Sam Leahy, like, and we kind of grouped together, like, kind of going through the same process as the strength coaches, and it's funny, you know, that even though, like, we, we live so far away from one another, our kind of paths are very similar. Yeah. A, a question I just want to ask, I just wrote down here, because Connor said this to me, Connor Ryan, he was saying that uh, I was, uh, this was kind of an issue when PRI was coming around, and he was doing PRI, and I was saying, how are you integrating that with SFMA? And I'm fairly sure this is what he said to me. Now, he says that, he will make sure that the person is neutral before he puts them through the SFMA because he feels that if he does an SFMA without going through kind of a, are they neutral or whatever PRI say, that he feels that it throws off a true reflection of SFMA. Would you do something similar? Would you kind of check that, you know, that, that they're in a more neutral position, that they don't have that sort of, you know, um, that left anterior interior chain issue or, or whatever it may be? Would you do that first before going to other assessments? Um... I think I would be interested to uh, talk to Connor about this. Connor, Connor Ryan. Connor Ryan, yeah. Um, I I typically don't do anything. I I start them on their feet and I work towards the table okay. and I don't do anything to manipulate um, their alignment or or no, to reset. Uh, just, 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 can, just just to be clear, I, I could be completely misquoting that now. So he does. yeah, no, it's well different strokes. Um, I want to see. I just want to see them move in the pattern that they are in. I'm going to know that if, if what if they're in an AIC or you know whatever school of thought you come from, I'm going to know what pattern they're in once I get them on the table anyway. Yeah, yeah. Then I can just trace that back to the movement dysfunction that I saw when they were on their feet. Yeah. But I, I personally want to wait to do any type of reset because I want to I want to see the real them. Yeah, um, yeah. You know what I mean? And then I'll we'll reset or we'll do a some type of intervention. And then retest some of the movements Movement or some together. of the um, table tests and, yeah. and see if there was a change. That makes sense. That makes sense. Uh, I suppose I'm gonna wait. I'm gonna wait one more question before we get into the to the super leopard one because that's that's the juicy one for this <laughs> podcast. Right. What would you say are, are the the biggest mistakes people make with their mobility work? You know, because you do a really good article on Juggernaut. You have lots of great articles on Juggernaut, but I think one of them was speaking about you know like people like. They're like, oh, my warm-ups are lasting 20 minutes, and you know, I have to do all this band distracted stuff for another 20 minutes, and you're just like, just pick your weakest links, your biggest bang for book, and like get to it. And another really uh, good part in the article was you were kind of like, you were saying that if it's an upper body day, focus maybe on your upper body. If it's lower body day, focus Because <laughs> you see it all the time. It's like, what are you doing today? Oh, I'm just doing some squats. It's like, why are you like... Why are you doing yeah. like everything upper body? So, what would you say are the biggest mistakes people people are making with their mobility work? Ah, uh, good question. So I'm I'm literally just finishing an article that I'm going to submit today that has several answers to this question. I think one is performing mobility drills, and I've already defined mobility as, as kind of joint and soft tissue.
five different hip stretches then. Yeah. You need to be, you need to have either performed self-assessment or screens or have had somebody with the qualifications to tell you exactly what you need. Yeah. Have, don't a, have a baseline. Yeah, don't perform a mobility corrective because that's what you think. Mm. Don't guess and don't assume. You need to have a reason, and you need to you need to screen and assess. Don't guess. That's what I that's what I always say. That's a big thing. Um, and I, I think going back to what we were talking about earlier, changes should occur relatively quickly if you pick the right exercise. So I think a mistake that people make is doing the same things for weeks to months and expecting a change. Yeah. And if you're not getting that change, it's because you're not picking the right exercise or the right corrective drill. It, it's just, it's something that I've like I've a, a lot a lot of friends who, who play sports here in Ireland and, and uh, I'm heavily involved in a in a sports club here. And I often see my friends going to the physios here and coming back with like 10, 12 different exercises. Like it's just basically throwing shit on the wall and seeing what sticks. But what's yeah. what what's really disheartening and all it nearly makes you angry now. I don't know about you, but the older I've gotten, the more sort of laid back and chilled out and kind of more accepting I've gotten, you know, of, of people. Mm-hmm. Like, the more I've kind of self-developed as a person, I'm realizing, listen, you can only control what you can, you can control, so don't sweat things you can't control. But when I was younger, it nearly make you angry, like, when I'd see friends of mine, like, really dedicated athletes, but, like, they'd have, like, bad groin injury or whatever it will be, and they would diligent, or I can't say the word, they'd be diligent at doing the rehab that they were given. But it was just that the rehab was so bad that they just didn't get any results. But when they went back to the physio, or you guys call them physical therapists over there, we call them physios here in Ireland. But when they went back to the physio, the physio was like, Did you, do, you didn't do the rehab. No, you, there's no way. Nothing's changed. It's just like, it's not the person. It's your rehab. It's crap. Like, they've like no baseline, no standard operating system. As you just said, they're like, they were just basically like A4 sheet, 10, 12 different random exercises no uh, test retest like it was just so disheartening like i'm just there like what is going on so exactly. yeah so it's 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 a uh, i think like that's you know and then like the the, the the lay person or the lay person who's an athlete like they lose faith then in phys- in physios in ireland here that's the case they're like oh i've been to five and i'm not gonna, what's the point like you know what i mean so it's like yeah. it's, it's it that's why there's guys like you and charlie and, and gray and bill and, and i'm and I know you're you're kind of thinking to yourself there, Jesus, don't put me in the same league as those guys. But I mean, you're you're striving in that direction anyway. But that's why it's so important to have you guys put stuff out there and, and be on podcasts like this to let people know like there actually is good good therapists out there. Like people always go to me like like if you had this, what would you do? And I'd be like, honestly, I get on a plane and I go see Charlie Weingroff or Bill Hartman. <laughs> yeah. So exactly right. It's all different. You wouldn't say, you know, I'm going to the I'm going to get my my doctoring today i'm going to the medical doctor i'm just you know it's it's the do, it's doctor specific you know yeah. if you if you're going to need a surgery you want to go to the best surgeon yeah and so physical therapy at the moment is not one entity it's there are quality um gaps and so that's i mean that's a problem but you've also got to understand that just because you went to a couple physical therapists and it didn't help doesn't mean that physical therapy in and of itself is not Oh, 100% agree with that, yeah, 100%, yeah, definitely, yeah. Going back to your last question, I think another mistake that people make is is overusing a band as a mobilization tool. Mm. Um, those things, mobilization with movement, um, are very, very powerful tools. The band is a great, great tool used by, kind of brought into the rehab game by Geoff Maitland, 
you've got to use that range of motion. And in fact, for me, the goal is for people to, to be able to mobilize themselves without a band as soon as possible. Because when you train or in your sport, your joints are actually going through in extreme compressive forces. It's actually the opposite of what a band would do, right? You're, you're not sitting on the competition platform or the field with your hip distracted, mm-hmm. inferior, laterally, or whatever. You know, your joint, your hip is actually compressed. And so you need to be able to mobilize your joints and perform your corrective movements with compressive forces acting on them and be just as comfortable as if there was a band. And so I think that people think I've got to mobilize my hip that I have to use a band when that's, it's so not the case. It's a tool to get you out of a little bit of pain or to clear up some space, but then you've got to learn how to move without it. Would you, just so, uh, pop into my head, would you be getting that compressive nature from your weight training though? So like, let's say if you were to band distract in your warm-up, let's say, and then you went into some squats, would that, would the squats take care of, you know, potentially take care of that? I think that you, I think, depending on the athlete, I think there's got to be a middle ground of some type of motor control. Yeah. Because when you go from an unloaded, band-distracted position that's that's very non-compressive, yeah. right, and then go right into something that's extremely compressive, like a loaded back squat, unless your motor patterns are nailed, yeah, yeah. I think there's a middle gap that you're, that you're missing in it. And so I don't think that the benefits you get from that distractive band drill will, will carry over that well. Now... If you're using it as like maintenance, or maybe you're a little sore, you know, you're a you're a hard charging athlete. You're a little sore from the day before. Yeah, I throw a band, I feel a little bit better now. I can squat. But if you've got a true um, painful or a dysfunctional joint, or you've got motor patterns that aren't dialed in, it's not going to work that well. You've got to get in the you've got to get the band off. You've got to get in a quadruped, and you know, even just something as simple as quadruped rocking, mm-hmm. where you're where you're working on stabilizing the trunk. Yeah. But you're continuously rocking your hips past 90 degrees in different angles. You know, you widen your feet with a narrow knee stance, or you go wider knees, narrow feet, and you just rock back and forth. And maybe you take a hand off the ground when you're rocked back past 90 degrees, so you feel your abs have to turn on in that, you know, squatting pattern, quote-unquote, even though you're in quadruped. But there's got to be something in the middle, I think. Those those newer developmental positions are so powerful, aren't they? Like, uh, like the, from the four by four matrix, like you know, supine, prone, quadruped, half kneeling, standing. Like quadruped is just fixes so much shit. It's unbelievable. Oh, it's unbelievable. Yeah, you it's, just gotta. Well, it's you know, it's annoying at this point when we see pictures of infants squatting in there. It's like, oh, no, perfect squat. But the the idea is that kid learned how to squat from moving in different positions yeah. for months. You know, they explored their body with ground contact, and that's how you figure out where you are in space. Yeah, yeah. And as adults, we kind of lose that. You know, we don't keep the, the physical skills that we had when we were children, but then all of a sudden, as adults, we want to go back to doing things like snatching and clean jerking and back squatting, but we've lost that proprioceptive input. Mm. So getting people back in that quadruped, half kneeling, like you're saying, supine prone, it's so powerful. Yeah, it's it's. I remember being. Uh, I actually, I I was, <clears throat> I wasn't in the room at the time. I was over in Holland. I was taking the SFMA, and a friend of mine was taking level two FMS. But they were both in the same hotel. And my friend came out and he said, "You won't believe what Gray just done." And I was like, "What?" He says, "A girl was doing inline lunge, and she couldn't do one side to save her life." And Gray says, "Get into quadruped there, 
and bear crawl around the whole room and come back and she just did that quadruped bear crawls quadruped around the room with bear crawl keeping everything you know good technique apparently like she was all over the place and uh, Grace just there talking to everyone any other questions blah, blah, blah. by the time the girl came back she's like okay right now pop up there and then she just nails it and everyone's just like what the fuck and Grace is like yeah well you tap into those criminal patterns that's what happens so uh, it's yeah it's, okay. just, they're just so powerful because I like I suppose like when people and even myself when I was younger I don't know about you too like when you kind of see these things first you're kind of like what the fuck is that what's that what's that really gonna do come on do you know what I mean? And then you're kind of like, oh, wait, uh, that does work. <laughs> yeah, it was like the opposite. I think probably segueing into what you're going to ask me next about the supple leopard, you know, the seeing all these aggressive stretches and mobilizations, it made intuitive sense to me that those are the things that are going to do something. Yes. You know, if I can, you know, if I can tear my up my scar tissue or restore my sliding surfaces, you know, that's the stuff that's going to do something. What's wrong? What's fucking rolling around on the ground from prone to supine going to do? You know, yeah. those soft rolling patterns. That's not going to do anything. Yeah, exactly. But, that, like, I was the exact same too, yeah. And then the, and then the thing is, when, when, when you try to start introducing that, the fact in the back of your mind you have this doubt is, it, like, you're not, yeah. se- you're not selling it, and so the person doesn't fucking believe in it. I had that big time, say, four or five years ago, like, trying to sell some breeding stuff or whatever. Like, oh, I'll just do some rolling because I still didn't fully understand that. And I was like, I don't know if this shit really does anything, but I'm, you know. Whereas now, like, like, and to be honest, it was Charlie Weingraf that really changed that with his first DVD. Because when I saw how Charlie coached, like, and he coaches rehab, like, it's not like, yeah, that's how I would define it. Like, he coaches rehab, like, and that changed my whole outlook. Like, I was like, oh, that's because the way I'm doing it is shit. <laughs> like, I'm not, like, doing any, you know, with the eyes, with the tongue, with the, the breath, and, like, the, you know, and then. Like, cause now, like, whenever I do any breeding stuff or like that, like, people see that I'm like so dead serious. They're just like, all right, he, like, he always like this is gonna work, cause like he's 100 percent selling me on this, you know. Which I think is such a huge part in it, you know, because obviously you have to believe in what you're selling. Yeah, oh, I think that's just a natural progression for any new coach or new clinician. You, Big time, yeah. You, we all go through that. Um, <clears throat> well, actually, before we get to the leopard, one question I definitely want to ask is. Uh, because this, this is only a new thing to me too and, and you had it in one of your articles was this idea of thoracic flexion from PRI which was you know the first time you hear that you're like sorry what? what uh, sorry yeah. more thoracic flexion? because <laughs> it was funny Mike when Mike Robertson was over he said the same thing he goes uh, I said flexion there just if anyone didn't hear that because um, you know we're so used to hearing like oh you need more thoracic extension but this idea of thoracic flexion and reaching like this idea to reach uh how has that sort of inputted, you know, or changed the way you kind of maybe do things or cue certain exercises? Yes, going back to this idea of a reset, and you do, you still need thoracic extension, and we'll talk about that here in a second. But the flexion is the idea that so many people, when you when you truly look at them, even when even the people that look like they're excessively kyphotic, they're actually hinging at their thoracic thoracolumbar junction, so they're actually extended. Through their lower back and through their lower rib cage, mm-hmm. and so they're they're sucking extension. They're actually already extended, overly so. And so the idea of restoring that natural kyphosis in the upper back is really just about restoring that thoracolumbar junction. And so we get that in different positions. You know, different breathing drills, different kind of reaching. When we think about like having a turtle back, where really all you're doing is you're getting your hips back up underneath you. And you're getting your diaphragm and your pelvic floor to face each other again. And so it's exaggerating a position of neutral. 
So you, we take you from one end, and we put you on the other end, and then we find the middle. So once somebody learns how to get their lower ribs down, get their hips underneath them, restore that natural kyphosis in their upper back, but it's over the top of a, of a neutral junction or a neutral lower back, then we teach them how to extend through their upper thoracic spine because you need extension to snatch, to clean and jerk, to squat, to overhead press. You know, nobody, nobody's lifting heavy weights with a rounded back. Mm. I mean, not, let's say nobody because there's round back deadlifters out there that deadlift thousand pounds, but you know what I mean? Yeah, like, yeah. we're not in this hunched over fetal position with weight over our head, but you've got to learn how to get neutral first. You've got to pull back and then extend out of it. Mm -hmm. And that's the idea that I take. For somebody who's in pain, it's just about, really it's just about resetting their nervous system. Because when somebody is in overextension, that's a threat response. What do you do, what does somebody do when you scare them? They put their arms in the air and they extend their lower backs. You know, or what, do you, what does a baby do if you pretend to drop it? Like it's that moral reflex where it just freaks out and arms go in the air and it extends its lower back. It's a threat response. Mm -hmm. So these flexion-based drills are a way to tap into the parasympathetic nervous system and give you a reset. Yeah, yeah. Plus sense. the biomechanical things that I just said. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's both biomechanical and the physiological sort of uh, advantage that, that, that we're getting with doing those type of drills you mentioned. And just for the listeners, uh, Quinn has a YouTube channel where he shows a lot of these drills, like the, the turtle back breathing and deep, you know, breathing deep into the diaphragm and getting that flexion restored. Just a, an, another interesting question, because this kind of came from Charlie's second DVD where he was talking about, you know, and I said this to Mike too, <clears throat> then the idea of cueing rowing. You know the way we'd always cue, you know, squeeze your shoulder blades, squeeze your shoulder blades together. And like Charlie was kind of like, you know, that's actually not a great thing because you're getting this wing scapula now away from the rib cage. And actually, if you were to look at that through a neurological lens, that's actually like a, a, a sick baby, essentially. Yep. So I was kind of saying to Mike, because I actually didn't get a chance to, to ask Charlie about it. I must when I when I uh, bring him on the podcast again. But I was saying like, you know, so because Mike is so for people that, that I don't people are familiar with Mike Robinson, but like Mike is just like has to be one of the best sort of. Like his coaching cues are just unbelievable. Like you know, when he was doing like split squat, it was just like so perfect. You know what I mean? It's just like that's the most perfect split squat I've ever seen. So I was just like, you know, how are you coaching roles since that kind of thing with Charlie? And and he was kind of like, I do agree with him that you don't want them fully, fully back. And he was kind of showing me how he's doing it. But just interested to know how would you cue a row now? Because it's kind of an area that I'm trying to make sure that I'm kind of fully understanding too. Because you know, before you were just like, oh, here's my finger, squeeze between your shoulder blades, and you were thinking you're doing a great job, but really they were just going into that overly extended position to the low back again and winging the scapula. So, just with that, what would you do in that instance, Quinn? And you're talking about the soft roll from like supine prone, prone supine? No, no, sorry, like like doing a, an actual dumbbell row or something. Uh, oh, sorry, sorry, to, sorry. So just just to make sure I'm clear there. So in, right. in Charlie's DVD, he, he was like, you know, when you do yeah. say a, a seated cable row, and he and we for years we'd be like, oh, squeeze your shoulder blades as hard as you can. But what people were doing was they were going to massive extension, and then they were getting yeah. like wingy scapulas. And like Charlie's just saying, like as you just said there, extension is like a frightened response of a child, like you know what I mean. And then the, with the wingy scapula is like neural, uh, like 
like it's a neurological issue with a child so he's like that's not a good position to be training people to get into or, or telling the body that oh this is good so like i was asking mike robertson like how is he cueing rows and does he still cue to retract the shoulder blade and mike was like i do but like there's a balance there you don't like overly drive it back you know what i mean it's just like the weight should be heavy enough that you can retract he's just, mike's just like you retract uh, you retract the amount you protracted essentially and no more that's kind of what mike right. was saying so just yeah, in, inter- yeah, interested right. in, interested to see how you how you cue that sorry i wasn't talking about um easy rolls or soft rolls my mistake um i it goes back to what we we're talking about with the flexion of the rib cage like you need a little bit of of a kyphosis in your in your rib cage and your upper back because that the shoulder blade is curved right mm-hmm. and so you have a curved shoulder blade it needs to slide around on a curved rib cage so that's kind of a an aside but going back to that neutral position i i'm with mike i cue mid-range yeah so i let them whether it's a, a dumbbell row or whether it's a pull-up or a body row like on a trx band i want their shoulder blades to protract at the bottom mm-hmm. i want shoulder blade movement yeah Big time. and then i'm cueing a retraction to about mid-range and so it's not it's a point where they can move their shoulder blade but they don't have to move their entire rib cage to get the job done. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think it's pretty much what Mike is saying. The amount that you protract is the amount that you retract. And I- yeah, yeah. I think that that was a nice way of putting it because, you know, again, most people that are saying are just, just like ultimately retract their shoulder blades. But it's it, it was interesting, you know, because I remember when Charlie was saying, I was like, well, how the fuck am I meant to cue rows now? <laughs> so this kind of goes back to what we were talking about with the flexion in the upper back or just restoring that natural kyphosis. Because we want that curve in our thoracic spine and our rib cage because our shoulder blades are curved. You know, so you've got this curved shoulder blade sliding over a curved rib cage and it's very congruent. So it's like what Charlie's saying, if you if you pin your shoulder black shoulder blades back too much, you end up just tilting the rib cage back and you lose that congruency. Your rib cage becomes this straight, like kind of rod, and you lose that congruency with the curved shoulder blade. So that's that's an aside, but that kind of goes back to what we were saying with ribcage position. And I would agree with Mike that I want I want protraction. So at the bottom of the movement, whether it's a dumbbell row, TRX row, or pull-up, or anything like that, I want the shoulder blades to go. I, I, I kind of coach it as just let your shoulder blades go. Let them protract. And then the amount of retraction is pretty equal to the amount of protraction. So it's that mid-range position. You're not trying to pin them back so much that you're tilting your ribcage because I also don't think that's a very sustainable position. It's very, it's not a strong position to keep your shoulder blades pulled back like that. The only way, the only re- time that I would cue that really is in a competition bench press style lift. Otherwise, I want that fluid motion of the shoulder blade, mid-range retraction, do the row, and then let your shoulder blade go again into protraction. That's a great answer. All right, let's get into the juicy question. Oh boy. <laughs> All right, so you wrote a brilliant article called Supple Leopard versus the World. And just for the uh, the listeners, a bit of background, I, I spoke to Quinn off-air before we started the interview, and uh, I was saying that I was one of the kind of suckers that fell for this, you know, neutral foot, drive your knees out, and it destroyed my left knee, the cartilage in my left knee. Um, well, destroy, destroyed is a bit harsh, but it was giving me issues with my left knee, and... Uh, Long story short, I, I ended up between a few different sources, Chad Wesley Smith being one, Brandon Lilly, um, a girl over in Capital Strength called uh, Alexander Craig, um, she's an Olympic different coach. So between those three guys, they kind of influenced my thought process again, and 
essentially I changed my squat to narrow stance, slightly toed out, and just my knee hinging over my foot in line with my second toe rather than pushing it extremely out and also fixing my upper back position with my bar that's another thing but uh, essentially my knee is a thousand percent better absolutely no problems and my squat is the best it's ever been in regards to movement wise and, and strength wise so I'm, I'm hoping to hit a a good PR now at the end of six weeks I'm, I'm halfway through a 12 week cycle right now so six weeks time I hope to hit a, a new PR which for me would be about 185 kilo squat and I'm not I'm not very strong but it's good for me So let's 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 sorry, let's get into the article. Okay, so I wrote the article over a year ago now. Um, wrote the article. Really it was a rebuttal on the debate on Bob Takano, who was a weightlifting coach, and this chiropractor out west who were ha- who were seeing issues injuries with these people who are demonstrating this exaggerated knees out squat. So a knee like knees out Instead of it being just a cue to correct a faulty movement pattern in the moment, it somehow became this type of squat mm. where the feet are very narrow, but they're pointed straight ahead, and the knees are shoved out outside of the plane of the foot. Yeah. And so the chiropractor was seeing people demonstrate this squat and seeing it correlate with different types of issues like knee, hip, and back. And so the original debate, debate was on Bob Takano's blog, and then I responded to the rebuttal of what Kelly's, um, I don't know, somebody, some of his MWOD people wrote a rebuttal that I thought was a little bit um, outside of the mechanics that I'm familiar with. And so I wrote a response, and basically the the premise is that people's morphology is going to be different. Not everyone is meant to squat toes forward knees out and in fact I would say it works for the minority of people Mm. the vast majority of people are going to be much more comfortable with a a toe out position up to 30 degrees and just allow their ankles knees and hips to hinge naturally I address the notion of torque which in biomechanics is a very specific thing torque is you know it's equal to the force in the direction that you want it so in a squat, the extension torque is really the only one that matters, and that's you standing up, right? Hip extension, you up in the sagittal plane. There, obviously, there is a rotational component, but in my opinion, cueing active rotation is not going to is going to is going to limit the energy that you can put into standing up. Mm. And so, rather than shoving your knees outside of the plane of the foot to create an external rotation torque which is secondary to the extension torque that is really important in standing up for the squat, it makes more sense to allow the ankles, knees, and hips to hinge in mid-range naturally in line with the plane of the foot and to resist rotational torque. So resist your knees caving in. Resist your knees driving excessively outward and just let your, them hinge naturally in mid-range. You know, it's, it's funny you say that because that's exactly how my squat feels in that when I used to squat the old way, like I used to feel that so much of my energy was going into keeping my knees out and I'd fold over in half sometimes under heavy, you know, I'd lose that upper back. It felt like driving my knees out was taken away from my extension torque, as you just put it there. It's not how I originally thought about it, but that's what it sounds like. Whereas now, 
Like I, I was thinking in my head, shit, I'm gonna get so much weaker because my stance is narrow. Do you know that kind of way? Because I'm squatting yeah. deeper now too. Like I'm actually squatting like way below parallel, whereas kind of before maybe a bit more powerlifting just below parallel. But uh, but like I like like my squat is the strongest literally it's ever been like and, and I'm going through full range of motion but I think again it's because I'm just naturally letting my, my ankle knee and hip hinge in, in the sagittal plane and now I can my, my body can save that energy more for that extension torque so just you saying that's kind of a bit of a light bulb there because you know you kind of nearly verbalize how I feel my squat is I feel so much like way stronger getting out of the hole yeah exactly so it's you're you need you're moving in the frontal plane and transverse plane to assume your start position. So whatever amount of abduction and rotation that allows you to get into your comfortable squat stance, that's just where you are. Mm. The vast majority of the actual movement is going to occur in the sagittal plane, and then you're going to resist motion in the frontal and the transverse plane. And it's much, much different than trying to create it. Mm. And I think a point to where your, your knee issues were coming from, if you have a tibia or the shin bone, that's completely straightforward. But you are shoving your knees out to the side. So essentially you're rotating your femur around a shin bone that's that's staying straight. You are creating a rotational force in the knee joint that it is not designed to do. Mm. Your knee has a rotational capacity. It's very subtle. It's called the lock the lock-in mechanism. Where you, when you straighten your knee, when you lock it straight, your shin bone rotates out or externally rotates, and this locks your knee in. But when you squat, you actually rotate the other way. And so by shoving your knees out, you are essentially rotating your knee in the exact opposite that it is designed to go in. Your, your shin bone is forward, and you're rotating a femur with a fixed shin yeah. and so you are creating a torque in your knee yeah. but it's, it's it's a torque that's going to stress soft tissue yeah. Yeah. and so unless you have hips that are very very specific to being able to squat with your toes straight like if you have an acetabulum that's oriented a little bit more anteriorly or you've got the specific amount of antiversion retroversion or inclination of the femoral neck to allow you to do that comfortably like I'm pretty sure Kelly Sarret does because he sits into that toes forward, knees out squat pretty damn easily. Yeah, he does. And it looks good and it looks natural and you're like, oh shit, you know, I want to be able to do that. But I I think that he is built to be able to do that and many, 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 many people are not. But they're trying to jam themselves into these positions that just aren't natural for their anatomy. Like, well, like, I know, like, obviously with McGill's work, you know, he's like, listen, everyone's hips are completely different. And e- even before Kelly's work, I always would have said, and I still, I still uh, abide by this, that, listen, there's no one squat for everyone. Like, because again, no two individuals are the same. Everyone has different ankle structures, uh, shin, femur structures, hip structures, back structures. So like, there's no one way to squat. Like, there's no one universal way for to squat. Same, right. it's like nutrition. There's no one nutritional uh, protocol that every single human being could abide by because we're so biochemically individual same as we are biomechanically individual the reason why I did try Kelly's kind of method was that I, I generally like even even now that I am standing narrow with a toe out I, I don't accept, I, I never needed a vicious toe out so I like a lot of people think that my foot position is kind of neutralish anyway so that's kind of why I was like well I'll give this a try but like it just destroyed my knee <laughs> so it did so, yeah it, just, it wasn't for you and, and I want to be perfect 
perfectly clear. Kelly Starrett was was actually a big influence on me yeah. going to T school, and I so this is never it's just not a knock on anyone. It's just simply oh, absolutely yeah, that yeah. one one way to squat to to say that this is the universal you know technique or this is the universal movement pattern. It's just it just doesn't work like that. Yeah, yeah. You know, so. it's just it's just that simple. Yeah, big time. And I I agree. Like to just because we're uh, you know, critiquing some ideas from an individual, Kelly, in this instance, doesn't mean we don't like the person. It's like Mike Boyle saying you can disagree without disliking someone. It's like everyone kind of thinks if you disagree with someone that you automatically don't like the person. That's not the case at all for either of us with regards to Kelly's work. Kelly has great stuff out there and has been influencing me too. So I, I've only just three questions left, Quinn, and uh, we will wrap it up. Um, what would you say has been the biggest thing you've learned so far in your career? Oh, it's, it's definitely the influence of the nervous system. I, my philosophy has changed so much in the past two years, and even when I was still in PT school from this very, very, very biomechanical, structurally-based mindset where I, I, I wanted to be the best manual therapist. Like, it was almost the exact opposite of the way I am now. Yeah. I wanted to only be known for my hands, and I wanted to be known as the wizard who could manipulate, you know, any joint and to fix anything. And and now I know, first of all, I know that that's not the way it works. I'm not manipulating structure, and I know that that's not realistic. And now I'm the complete opposite. Is I want to, I want to teach people how to manipulate their own nervous system or neural drive so that they can use movement as their corrective. And I want to, I want to actually use my hands as little as possible. And so I think the biggest thing for me was what you had said earlier, is that everything is a brain thing. Mm. And if we can create an input to the brain in the appropriate dose, then we can create an output with the outcomes that we want, yeah. be that movement or whatever. So it's finding the right input with the right intervention to create the appropriate output. And I think that's just changed me tremendously you know i think too like again very similar to you that when i was sort of younger too getting into manual therapy i was like uh, you know i want to learn everything you know i want to learn art and drawing needling and all these adjustment techniques because i was just purely like technique technique orientated I, i'd no concept you know i'd no idea of having again a standard operating system and as well it's kind of like you know, you think that oh, if I have, you know, and, and that's not. To, listen, you should learn all those and have all those tools in your toolbox, absolutely. But the point I'm making is, like, you're kind of like, oh, if I, you know, like I'll crack the back and adjust it and this and that and that. It's kind of like you could get the same result with a lot less. You know, like there's yeah. another way to get that. There's there's a better. There's a more. Sorry, the word I'm looking for is this. There's a way more efficient way to get the response from the nervous system than needing to do five different techniques just because you feel because you have them in your arsenal that you have to use them is that kind exactly. of make sense so you, you like for instance like you know you could crack the thoracic spine but you could get the same result with just 10 breaths into the belly and and you oh. and, and and in you know if you crack the back it's passive if you teach someone how to belly breathe it's it has the, an effect on the autonomic nervous system it's mobilizing it it's uh, teaching the person how to de-stress. It's teaching the person how to breathe their diaphragm. You're getting so much bigger bang for your book with that way more efficient exercise than you know cracking their back. Whereas you know when you're younger, you're like oh, I'm gonna crack backs and do ART, and it's just like no, less is more. Be more efficient. 
you said, they're tools, and I have them in my back pocket if I need them. Yeah, yeah. For example, if somebody, you know, if I'm in some type of quadruped or we're doing some type of thoracic, trying to do some type of, of active thoracic mobilization or breathing drill, and they keep this, you know, feeling this stitch in their upper back or they've got this, like, they feel like their, their upper back needs to pop, but it won't, and we can't get to it with these, with these active things. I'm like, you know what? Sit on the edge of the table. Three seconds, I pop their back. And we're right back to the drill, yeah. but now they have now they're moving more freely. Mm-hmm. And so I use that tool as a as to make a quick neural input, a quick change to get what I wanted. Yeah. But I didn't use it or think of it as the correction. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If that makes sense. It's it's kind of like it's exactly like when Mike Boyle talks about regard like if you were to look at it at the strength condition aspect, he's like, it's like people going, I'm a kettlebell guy or I'm a sandbag guy or I'm a powerlifting guy, I'm a lifting guy. It's the same thing with therapy. It's like, I'm a, an ART guy, I'm a mulligan guy, I'm a this guy. It's like, no, no, take all that shit, use every single one of it, have it in your toolbox and use it when you need to use it. But again, the point that, that what I'm making and you're clearly understanding it is that like all we're trying to do is influence the nervous system and like if you can use a technique that's way more efficient and gives you a bigger bang for what go with that because when i was younger i was like oh like uh, I, I i have to learn to just t-spine because you know if you can't crack a t-spine you just you just can't mobilize it and it's just like you can mobilize it loads of ways without cracking it, <laughs> it does not yeah doesn't have to crack it like so but that's yeah definitely the biggest thing you learned is that it's all about the nervous system that's a great answer and to yeah and to, to get people to to be to take ownership of their own corrections you know like big time yeah to, to figure it out, that's what makes the quadruped position so powerful is they can figure out where their bottom position is. Mm. You know, if, you're, if you can't squat toes forward, then get in quadruped and play with your knee width and play with your foot width and figure out where your stance is and then grab, grab a kettlebell and do spend 10 minutes goblet squatting and use the kettlebell as a counterbalance and play with your bottom position. Sit in the bottom with toes way out, with toes forward, knees in, knees out. Figure out where you are, you know, and that's going to be way more powerful than trying to be in one position and spending your entire life trying to attain a toes forward, knees out squat, or, or, you know, insert your example here, whatever it is that you want. Yeah, yeah, big time. I want to give people ownership, that's all. yeah. No, great answer. I'm the same. I'm all about empowering people as much as possible. Like, uh, I, I'd be very influenced by the writings of like Ralph Waldo Emerson, self reliance, and that's kind of, you know, I suppose if you have to get the core, get to the core of me as a person, I'm very much about self reliance and, and people thinking for themselves and coming to their own conclusions. Like, even uh, like I recently released an online educational product, strength edition one, um, the uh, ultimate performance seminar series. It's just twenty hours, twenty hours of material of uh, you know. It, FMS and the correct strategies and and things like you know plyos and med balls and multi-directional linear multi-directional speed stuff like that but at the very very start the first thing I said at the very start in one of the lectures was I'm not a guru all I ever encourage people to do is think for themselves like all I do is share information you do what you want with the information but like I want you to formulate your own conclusions after you hear me sharing my information that's all I do anyway so same with you like people taking ownership for their bodies their lives that's kind of what i'm about as well so quinn just last two questions advice to anyone i, I used to always say advice to young coaches but i stopped saying that because your advice could be to any coach it could be it could be a 67 year old coach is this and you say something he's like god that's great advice so what would be your coach to any or say your coach what would be your advice to any coach therapist uh trainee listening to this yeah i think what we talked about earlier don't lock yourself in 
about how to run a business and how to write business plans mm. and how to invest my money and all of these things that are secondary to my career and to my life. But I would, I would uh, encourage people to, to kind of branch out because I think we can get caught up in our industry and we can get caught up in our career and what exactly we're doing and everything's funneled into what we do. But it's, it's almost a break to the, to the mind to learn about something else. Yeah. You know what I mean? And I like, one of my goals in 2015 is to learn how to play the guitar. And mm-hmm. I, I've got these things that have nothing to do with physical therapy and have nothing to do with weightlifting or nothing to do with training. But at the same time, it's going to help all of those things. I was, do you know what? You just, you literally just took the words out of my mouth. I was about to say, but playing the guitar, the guitar will carry over into your PT because you're, again, when you play guitar, your brain is getting healthier. You're stimulating other parts of your brain. So like, it's all going to carry over. You're being more creative. Like that definitely will have a general carryover to every aspect of your life. Absolutely. So I, I guess moral of the story is, is keep learning and that doesn't necessarily mean it has to be about your career and, and wear pants it's always good to wear pants wear pants <laughs> I was just joking uh, no but do, seriously do wear pants in public just just to be safe uh, just finally Quinn um, resources uh, your top sort of uh, whatever books DVDs uh, websites seminars it doesn't have to be it doesn't have to be one, one of all those it be just one kind of main thing whatever it is podcast like what would be your top resources for people to check out of me or things that I learned uh, sorry no first of all things like you know uh, books you'd recommend and then you can give us your, your website and all that type of stuff okay um, I would recommend the movement book by Greg Cook, I would recommend uh, Greg Cook's DVDs, Charlie Weingroff's DVDs. I would recommend that you go on Bill Hartman's blog and read his stuff. Um, I would recommend you read about the brain, the brain that changes itself. It's oh, a great book. By Norman Deutsch, brilliant book. Yeah, The Body Has a Mind of Its Own is another amazing book. Mm, um, Why Zebras Don't Get Ulcers. I mean, all these things that have to do with with chronic stress, very good book. Yeah. Chronic pain, uh, explain pain, is an amazing book. So yeah, I think those are the resources that I would that I would start with. Brilliant, that's brilliant. What what was that? So you named the brain that changed stuff. What was the one after that? The body without a, what was it? The body has a mind of its own. The body, I, I never heard that. One. The body has a mind of its own. Oh, the body has a mind. Sorry, people, you can wait while I take this note. The body has a mind of its own. Yes, I write very slow. Um, finally, then, Quinn, where, where can people find out more about, about yourself? Most of my stuff is on uh, Juggernaut Training Systems website, so jtsstrength.com. All my articles, a lot of videos. We do seminars. The Become Unstoppable seminar is going to be in New York in March. Um, I also do a lot of stuff with Ryan Brown and Dark Side Strength. We're launching a brand new website here very soon. So be looking for that, esstrength.com. I've got a YouTube channel, as you said before, with just Quinn Hennick YouTube. Um, lots of videos, lots of correctives. The Dark Side Strength YouTube channel has about 150 videos of drills, tips, discussion on all the stuff we talked about today. Um, yeah, that's about it. I would just look Read the videos, read the articles, and, and shoot me any questions. I'm on Facebook. I'm pretty accessible.
accessible. So I love for anybody who has any questions about the industry or about anything we talked about today to feel free to ask. Yeah, just just to let uh, listeners know and yourself, Gunn, I'll link all that stuff in the show notes. So to the Juggernaut website, Dark Side, your YouTube channel, Dark Side YouTube channel. Oh, awesome. oh, now that we're on it, let's see. I've got Instagram. <laughs> you send me, you send me that stuff. I'll link it. No problem. Okay. <laughs> um, and right. just just so people know too, Quinn is very accessible. Like I literally just Facebook or Facebook message a few days ago. I was like, do you want to hop on the podcast? And he was just like straight back. Absolutely, boom. Tuesday, eleven a.m his time 4 p.m my time you know more about our lives now than than our parents do but anyway uh, no so like quinn i really appreciate you coming on just i say this every time on a podcast just hold on 30 seconds while i you know after the podcast i'll press stop here so and i'll say goodbye to you off offline so guys thanks a million for listening to another uh, brilliant podcast um finally the last few podcasts i've done actually quinn the audio was a bit dodgy so like when i was interviewing you i was like yes i can hear him clearly for some reason i don't know like the i got new internet into my place here so so the the, the audio sound good but guys listen thanks a million for a download list of the podcast if you can leave a review on itunes because it, it obviously bumps us up on the ratings and also please check out the show sponsor upmentorship.com because if you can go over there and purchase that product it really helps support the show so thanks a million for listening guys thanks to dr quinn henock for being on the show take care stay strong and i'll talk to everyone soon